Great job. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. If you have your Bibles, I hope you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And while you're finding your place, if you're our guest today, I'm Shane. I'm the pastor, and I approve this haircut. <laughs> All right, so uh, here we are. We're systematically just going precept by precept through the book of 1 Corinthians, just paragraph by paragraph. Uh, if you're our guest, I'm an expository-style preacher. I just start at the beginning and work my way through. And uh, we have chosen 1 Corinthians. That's kind of the book the Lord's laid on my heart. When you look at 1 Corinthians as an overview, you just take an overview of it, you'll notice that the whole book centers around the word commitment. I mean, commitment, that is, that's what Paul was encouraging the church at Corinth to do, is to commit themselves 100% fully to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why they needed encouragement in the area of commitment is because of Corinth's location and what Corinth was. Some scholars say that Corinth uh, was San Francisco, Las Vegas, New York City, uh, the French Quarter, all wrapped up in one city. If you were in Rome and you wanted to go down to Egypt, or if you were in Rome and you wanted to go to Israel, you had to get on a boat, and it was better to come down through the channel and come down to Corinth, where Corinth was located on an isthmus. It was a land bridge, and what they would do is they would unload all of their cargo on the, on the shore, and they would drag it four miles across that land bridge, load it on another boat, and take it on down to Egypt or Israel or wherever they were going, and vice versa. There was no canal during this time. It uh, had to be done very methodically and very patiently. So with that knowledge, you'll see that every boat that came into Corinth had to stay a while in order to get past that. So why didn't they just sail around? Well, the reason why they didn't sail around was the waters were so treacherous and the boats were not that sturdy. One historian said that if you made that pass and you sailed around Corinth twice, you were the luckiest individual because nobody sailed around Corinth twice. You might sail around it once and live, but you will not sail around it twice and live. The current was too bad, the boats were not up to par, and it was just a very dangerous, dangerous thing to do. It was easier, although it was more time-consuming, to, to sail down to Corinth and to go across that land bridge and then go on to where you're going. So this made Corinth just a hodgepodge, I mean a melting pot of all different kinds of cultures. And it became a huge, huge city. There were all different kinds of religions found there. There were all different kinds of temples that were found there. There was one temple, it was called the Temple of Healing. You could go to the Temple of Healing and if you had an ailing body part, like if you had a bum leg, you could go to the temple and you could pay money and buy a cast of somebody's leg and you would buy that and go in and offer it to the gods there uh, hoping that your leg would be healed. It was where the temple of Aphrodite was, where temple prostitutes would be sitting there up on this hill and you could go up and they would make sacrifices and have just sexual excursions to the god of Aphrodite in the day and then the temple prostitutes would come down at night into the streets in the city. It was absolutely a uh, humanistic, hedonistic city where man could do whatever he wanted to do. It was the Las Vegas of the day. 
God put it on Paul's heart to start a church there. So in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that Paul went to Corinth and he started the church at Corinth. And sure enough, as he started the church at Corinth and established that church, and that church called their pastor, who was Apollos, Paul started the church. He was their first pastor. He left. Apollos came in. And as Apollos came in, things started to change. Not that it was Apollos' uh, preaching that was the problem. It was the people's hearts. The people's hearts were such where they started trusting in man more than they were trusting in God. They started trusting in their gifts more than they were trusting in God. And their commitment to God began to wave. And their commitment to God began to drift. And they started to look more like the world than they did Jesus. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wrote this letter. And he talked about this issue of commitment as the overarching theme of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, when you dig a little deeper, you'll find 1 Corinthians actually has 11 topics There are 11 topics that he deals with. We've already dealt with the first topic, and that was thankfulness. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way, uh, if you will, to, uh, to verse 10, Paul dealt with this issue of being committed to being thankful. And Paul basically said this, I know that you guys are in trouble. I know that you guys are doing some things that aren't right. He says, but I'm thankful for you because each one of you possess the Holy Spirit of God and there's a tremendous amount of potential in you if you'll stop being worldly and stop being Christ-like. And so he was thankful for them. And then we moved into the second arena where we're at today and that is the topic of unity. The topic of unity. And within this topic, it started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 and ran all the way through chapter 3, verse 23. So today, we're going to look at verses 5 through 17, which means there's one other sermon on this topic of unity. Just to kind of give you a a, a, a review, if you would, of what Paul has already dealt with, remember, in the arena of unity, Paul says, as a church... We need to be united as one. We applied that at Maysville and said just simply this. We may have three services, but we're not three churches. We're one church. We're part of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And there's a unitedness about our church. Uh, The second thing he talked about is not only unity of the church, but also unity in the cross. We do not preach another gospel. We preach Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried, and thanks be to God, risen again. It's about the cross. We need to be united on the cross. We've already dealt with that. We talked about the true wisdom of God. What is the true wisdom of God? Paul says the true wisdom of God is knowing that Jesus Christ died for everybody. And the desire of God's heart is that everyone be saved. That's the true wisdom of God. And then we talked about who we were last week. Paul says that you're either uh, spiritual, natural, or carnal. He dealt with that last week in the text. He said you're one of the three. You're either a natural man, that is you're dying and on your way to hell. Or you're a spiritual man, that is you're born again and you're living for Jesus Christ. Or you're carnal, that is you're saved but you're feeding the flesh and not the spirit. And when you feed the flesh and not the spirit, you look more like the world than you do Jesus Christ. And then he's going to come back now this morning in chapter uh, 3, beginning in verse number 5, and he's going to talk about having unity in building up the church. 
Now that we're all spiritual, we ought to be working together to build the church. And of what's fascinating to me about this is of all the topics and all the challenges that uh, 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 Corinth had to deal with. I mean, we get to chapter 5, man, this church was doing some freaky stuff. I mean, they are crazy. But of all these things, he chose to deal with unity first. Now, I thank God to be the pastor at Maysville Baptist Church. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is the most unified church that I've ever pastored. I'm grateful for the unity that you have and the fellowship that you have of your pastor and your staff. Man, I praise God for that. But let me just share this. I really believe with all my heart what the devil wants to do here is he wants to divide us. If he can divide us, if he can uh, make three churches out of this place, if the devil could pit brothers and sisters against one another, if the devil could bring some division in this place in some way, the focus would be off of Jesus and be on that problem. And so I really believe the reason why we're going through this as a church, the, the, the wonderful letter to the church at Corinth, is I believe God is wanting to give us some preventative maintenance. He's wanting to give us some medicine. Make sure we stay healthy. It's like the book of 1 Corinthians for Maysville is vitamins. We're taking our vitamins while we're going through 1 Corinthians. And it's important to take our vitamins to stay healthy. And so when you think about this issue of unity, here's some facts that I think are very important about unity. Did you know that in the book of Corinthians, 25% of the book deals with unity? 25%. That's amazing to me. Why, then, do you deal so much with unity, Paul? That's the question I have for you. And it's if Paul speaks from the Scriptures and just says, there's a couple of reasons why. Here they are. Number one, reason number one I spoke about unity so much is because a divided church is a dying church. A divided church is a dying church. Each one of us can think about churches that are either dying or are dead because of disunity in the church. There have been churches that have shut their doors because brothers and sisters could not get along with each other. I, I remember one time in particular, a, a story of a pastor friend of mine who was preaching. I may have shared this before, but there was such disunity in the church that as soon as the clock hit 12 o'clock, members were reaching in their pocket, pulling out their keys, and shaking their keys while the preacher's trying to give a gospel invitation. Who would want to go to a church like that? Nobody. That's why it died. Disunity. A divided church is a dying church. A divided church, number two, is an unhealthy church. An unhealthy church. I've been unhealthy for the past two weeks. I had to go get some medicine and get strengthened back up, get my strength back, and, and I'm grateful to be feeling a whole lot better. But in the arena of a church, a divided church is an unhealthy church. Here's another reason. Unity must be fought for. If you're going to have unity in the church, you've got to fight for it. Why? Because the devil wants to do everything in his power to destroy it. And then here's the last one. Unity must be a priority. The reason why Paul dealt with this first and foremost, and it takes up 25% of the book, is because it's a priority. God wants us to be one church. We're one church. We're Maysville Baptist Church. And we uh, encapsulate, if you would, the church body as a whole worldwide. We're all the church of God as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we find ourselves in this section. And as we're in this section, Paul is going to be dealing with the unity of the church on building the church. And that is such a vitally important topic because we cannot do this alone. 
However, when you first read this text, it seems that there have been some religions in our day that have taken this text and pulled a couple of verses out of this text and made them pretext and kind of developed, if you would, a doctrine or theology that takes our attention off the context. So what do you mean, Pastor? Well, this passage of Scripture in particular deals with two issues that um, a lot of people point to which are just not true. The first one is purgatory. Purgatory. Uh, in this, just this previous hour, we had a dear, sweet woman who has a Catholic background listen to this teaching at the end of the service. She literally could not wait for the invitation. She got on the aisle, came, and gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because the Bible says what the Bible says. And the Bible does not teach purgatory. Well, let me show you the passage of Scripture first. Uh, we find it in verses uh, 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Here's the first hot topic of this passage. Now, I'm not getting into my sermon yet. I'm just dealing with the hot topics by way of introduction. I told you I got more preaching than I got time. But you're listening really fast, and I'm grateful for that. Notice what the text says, verse 14. Follow with me. If any man's works or work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is the only place in the Bible where Roman Catholicism points to and says that verse teaches purgatory. Let me just be mindful, please listen very carefully. Contextually, when you study that verse, it does not teach purgatory. So, well, what do you mean? Well, let me just say this first. Uh, recent studies in Roman, with Roman Catholic scholars have studied the context. They've done some critical uh, study of this verse in its context. And you now have Roman Catholic scholars stepping up to the plate and say, Look, as Roman Catholics, if we want to hold to purgatory, that's fine. But we cannot use this verse as a proof text. The reason why we cannot use this verse as a proof text is because he's not talking about people being burned. He's talking about people's works being burned. You look at the text again. The Bible says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. They simply say it's contextually improper to say that this verse speaks about purgatory when it's talking about the works of an individual. Remember what purgatory is in Roman Catholicism. Purgatory says that when you die, you have to go to hell and you have to atone for your sins. Dear friend, listen to me. Jesus already atoned for your sin as a born-again child of God. He paid the price. He bled. He died. It's not of works lest any man should boast. You don't have to do anything because He did everything. And so we find here this verse does not teach purgatory. Number two, we also have a second a hot topic here in this passage of Scripture. It's found in verse 16 and 17. It deals with the topic of suicide. The question that I've been asked through my years of ministry is pretty much twofold. Question number one, is suicide the unpardonable sin? Question number two, will suicide send you to hell if you're a Christian? That is, if I'm a Christian and I commit suicide, do I forfeit my uh, Christianity and go to hell. That's a big topic that, has, that I've encountered throughout the course of the year. The Bible speaks about this. In this particular passage of Scripture, notice what the Scripture says, and we'll deal with it in its context. 
The Bible says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. <clears throat> now when you read this passage of Scripture, you see here on the surface, it says that your body is the temple of God. The Bible does say that. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the Bible is very clear that your body is the temple of God. But concerning these questions, question number one, is suicide the unpardonable sin? The answer to that question is no. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. That is the unpardonable sin. You re reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you go to hell. It's not suicide. Question number two. Will suicide send you to hell if you're a Christian? The answer to that question is no. Listen to me very carefully. Listen to this statement. Every Christian will go to heaven. Every Christian will go to heaven, Romans 8, 38. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not height, death, nor things present, nor things in the past, nor things to come. The Scripture says, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. I can assure you of this very thing. There will be nobody in heaven that deserves to be there. You think about it. There are liars in heaven. There are cheaters in heaven. There are murderers in heaven. There are sinners that have been saved by grace in heaven. Every Christian goes to heaven. But let me show you a second thing about this text, and this is probably vitally important because here's where we get all messed up. Take your pens, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, and I want you to highlight or underline the personal pronouns in verses 16 and 17. I'll walk through it with you. It's very important that you do this. You don't want to miss it. The Bible says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. I'm reading from the King James. You, might be, you may have a New American Standard or a New King James, and it says you. You, know you not that you are the temple of God? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? All right, so you should have marked all three of those so far. Verse 17, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye, there's another one, are, or you are. Now, I want you to follow me on this. Don't, please don't leave yet. Don't check out. I need you to follow me. Listen to this statement I just said. I've got my English teacher here. All right? You testify, sister. That'd be good. All right? Watch this. When I said, I need you to follow me, who was I talking to? Thank you. You plural, the, the English teacher says. You see, it would have been so much easier if Paul would have been a southerner. If he were to say y'all, it would have just made everything clear. It would have. But he didn't. He said you. But here's what's fascinating. In the Greek, it is very distinguishable. In the Greek, there are different words for you and for you all or for y'all. Now, let's take our southern heritage and our wonderful vernacular that the Lord has blessed all of us with and let's apply it to this text and watch what happens when you read it. Look at what the Scripture says, because each one of these personal pronouns are plural. Watch this. Know y'all not that y'all are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in, in all y'all? Let's keep going. 
If any man defileth the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. So when we apply the proper pronouns in the plurality by which it was written, we see that he's not talking to an individual, he's talking to the church as a whole. All right? So this has nothing to do with an individual. It has everything to do with the church. Now, watch this. On one side, it has nothing to do with an individual. It really does, because if you look in verse number 17, watch this. Don't don't check out on me yet. He says, if any man, that's singular in the Greek, if any man defile the temple of God, him, that's singular in the Greek, God will destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. What he's saying here is this. Paul is saying, if there's anybody in the church that goes against the leadership of the church, as that leader is building on gold, silver, or precious stones, I'll deal with that in a little bit, if they go against that, God will destroy them. That's what it says, and it has nothing to do with uh, this issue of suicide. It has everything to do with leaders, pastors, teachers, judgment before God. It's not even talking about your judgment before God. It's talking about mine. Mine. So now, now that we know the context, let's look and see what Paul has to say. If you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom you believe? Even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know y'all not that y'all are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth within all y'all? For many, for any man that defiled the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. You may be seated for prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, illuminate our minds, speak to our hearts, encourage us from your word. In your name I pray, amen. Anytime you build a building, it's always good to have a blueprint. It's always good to see uh, what you're building. When God called Paul to start the church at Corinth, he had the blueprint. And he's taking that blueprint to Corinth. And there are two things that we find here in this text that are of vital importance in us building the church together. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice in verses 5 through 9 is the carriers of the blueprints. The carriers 
of the blueprints. There were some carriers here in the blueprints in verses 5 through 9. And Paul points out that himself, he's a carrier. And also Apollos is a carrier. Now remember, Apollos is their current pastor. And the Bible says here in the text that they're only servants doing a job for the Lord. I want you to notice four things about the carriers of these blueprints. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is their title. Look at verse number five. The scripture says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers. Paul identifies the title by which he wants to be called, the title by which he wants to be known for, and that is he wants to be known as a minister. Now this word minister is a fascinating Greek word. It's diakonos in the Greek. It's where we get our English term deacon. In its uh, definition, what it means is to run an errand. What he's saying is, Paul is saying, I am God's errand boy. God gives me an errand and I run his errand for him. I am a servant of the Lord. God's given me a job, he's given me assignment, and this is what I'm called to do. And I go do that job, I do that assignment, I am only a servant. And so is Apollos. Now the reason why this is important because they were making such a big deal about their preacher. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Others were saying, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Cephas, remember. And Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any one of you except for a few of you over there in the corner. He said, the problem is, you've got your focus on the messenger and not the message. The message that's coming from your pastor's mouth is so vitally important than the messenger. Some might be here to say, well, I'm going to tell you right now, I ain't coming tonight. Oh, Shane ain't preaching. Pastor ain't preaching, I ain't going to be there. Y'all be ashamed of yourself. Man, God has given us some talented young men that love the Lord with all their heart and giving them an opportunity. I wouldn't be the preacher that I am had Doug New, my mentor, not given me the opportunity every Sunday night to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, do y'all want to kill me? Y'all realize this is the third time I'm preaching today. Y'all want to kill your preacher, then listen, absolutely, then let him preach a, that tonight too. I mean, you're not going to get 100%. You're going to get whatever's left over from his nap. But the bottom line is simply this. My desire here at Maysville, here's my desire. I desire to be in one service. Man, God's given us 50 acres. But we can't put everybody in this room. So when we get that debt down, paid down just a little bit more, I'm going to have to ask for a, a team to be assembled to figure out how we're going to get to one service. I'll tell you one thing that would help. Here's one thing that would help if you want to know. One thing that would help me tremendously is get this gym finished up out here, and let's just go ahead and put down on record a couple of times a year, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Easter, um, um, uh, Palm Sunday. Let's just have one service over there. That'll, man, that will help me out tremendously. Help my voice out. You think about this. I've been here four years. We've been preaching uh, uh, in, in two services ever since I came. And on average, you've got a pastor, and that pastor preaches on Sunday morning, and he preaches, let's just say he never takes a break, and he preaches 52 times a year. Now, you take that and take me. I preach three times every Sunday. Now, I'm not asking to be poor, pitiful me. I'm just saying, y'all preaching me to death. And that's okay, but the fact of the matter is simply this. My desire is to be in one service, that we would have that unity where everybody would be together. There's no reason that God, what God has given us, this, this campus, this much space, 50 acres, 50 acres, we should be able to come up with a plan together 
as to how we can have one service. And if we have to have two Sunday schools, that's great. But we've got enough space on this campus to be able to do that. And you help me pray for that. That's a desire of my heart. I just want to be your minister. I want to minister like Paul is saying. Servants of God. Watch this, number two. Let me go on quickly. He says, number two, their trust. Their trust. Notice what he says in verse number five again. He says, who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. Uh, Again, there's that plural you, if you will. But he says, you believed. He says, don't focus on the messenger. Focus on the message. You're saved because of Jesus, not not Shane. Listen to me. I have people say, you might have people say this to you, David, or some of our other staff members. You come up to you and shake your hand and go, man, you saved me. You saved me. I love you. You saved me. I didn't save you. Bless God, I didn't even cut my finger and bleed for you. Jesus is the one that died. He's the one that bled. He's the one that was sacrificed. Jesus is the one that saved you, not me. The trust that we find here is that you put your trust not in the preacher, but in Jesus. Number three, the timing. Look at the timing. He says there in the text, he says uh, there that the Lord gave to every man. He simply says this, in the form of timing, when we came to you, we were ministers, you focused on Jesus, and every one of you had an opportunity to be saved. Each and every one, even right now as Paul's writing this, he says, now you have the opportunity to be saved. If I bring it up to speed, I would say, even now, right now, you have the opportunity to be saved. And watch this, here's number four, the truth, verses six through nine. Their truth. What is their truth? Look at what he says. He says it twice there in verse, first in verse 6. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God gave the increase. He says that twice. What is the truth? The truth of the matter is God's the one that's growing the church, not Paul. God's the one growing the church, not Apollos. God's the one that's growing the church, not Shane. God's the one that's growing this church, not David. God's the one that's growing the church, not the deacons. God is growing the church. And while there's loyalty to the pastor, there should not be more loyalty to the pastor than there is to Jesus. Loyalty to a person should never cause division. And so the truth here is just simply this. The reason why we're growing is because God's moving. God's moving and people are being saved. And getting baptized and uh, the church is growing. So there you find here uh, in this text, uh, if you would, you see the carriers of the blueprints. But let me show you number two. Here's the second thing. Second thing, number two. Not only do you see the carriers of the blueprints, but you see the confidence of the builder. The confidence of the builder. Watch this. Oh, it gets good right here. The confidence of the builder. In verses 10 through 17, Paul is going to deal with the judgment that comes to church leaders. Pastors, those that are leaders inside the church, those who build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He tells us here in this flow several things. Let's look at it. Notice the flow with me in verse 10. The first one he talks about is the master builder. The master builder. Look at what he says in the text. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me a wise master builder. The master builder is Paul. Now, don't think that Paul is being prideful by saying, Hey, hey, look at me. I'm a master builder. No, no, no. That's not his tone. The tone by which he uses, we find here in the text, is it found in verse 10 where he says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me. 
He says, the only reason I'm a master builder is because God has extended grace down to me. And He's giving me this grace, if you would. He says, God has done this. He's the one that's given me uh, the opportunity to be a wise master builder. He says, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Now follow me on this. According to this text, Paul says, I'm the master builder. He says, I've laid the foundation. That simply says, I started the church, and another buildeth their own. Who's he talking about? Apollos. Very good. You get an A with a smiley face. And one of them great big smiley faces with a red pen and a dot and a great big smile on it. I mean, you did it. Good job. Apollos. Apollos, he says, built upon the foundation. And then watch this. He says, and another buildeth thereupon, but let every man taketh heed how he buildeth thereupon. You know what he's saying there? He says, Apollos isn't going to be your pastor forever. There's going to be somebody else that comes behind him. And he better take heed how he builds. He better watch how he builds. I know this might sound shocking, but I'm not going to be your pastor forever. I mean, there'll be, there'll be a pastor after me. And there'll be a pastor after that pastor. Brian didn't stay here forever. I'm after, I'm after him. But every pastor that God gives you, they're all servants of God. And God has given them the opportunity to be this master builder, if you would. By the grace of God, as God's given them, that we might move forward and that we might see the true wisdom of God be exercised inside this church. The master builder. And then he talks about the foundation. Look at verse 11. What's the foundation? He says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, you can't, you can't lay another foundation. This church was built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and that's where it's going to stay. That is the foundation. Dear friend, you think about Maysville Baptist Church and the years that it's been in existence. How has it existed so long? Because we're not a country club. We're a church. And we're a church that have had pastors that stood behind this sacred desk and would just ring a clear middle C and call sin what it is and preach the word of God with boldness and not hee-haw around. And y'all didn't hire any uh, or call any pastors with lace on their underwear. Bless God, you got some men with backbone who's not afraid to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord! I praise God for that. We need some more men of God that will stand up and Call sin what it is. There's enough sissified churches out there that says, uh, I got a little scratch right there, preacher. Will you scratch it right there? And the, oh, you're okay. Yeah, let me, oh, yeah. How's that feel? Does that feel okay right there? Is that all right? Is that okay? You're going to be okay. It's your best life now. And you just have a great, God bless you. It's wonderful. Dear friend, listen, it ain't wonderful. And that itch you got is sin. In fact, it's a cancerous sin. And it causes you to die and you'll go to hell without Jesus Christ. You must deal with your sin. The foundation is built upon Jesus Christ. But then I want you to notice verse 12. He talks about here the materials. The materials. What are the materials? The materials here in verse number 12, he goes on to say this. He says, now if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. Here are the materials. Now be careful here because I don't miss this. He says, if any man, who is he talking to? He's still in the context of church leaders. He's talking to whoever the pastor is going to be after Apollos. Whoever that pastor is going to be. If that pastor that comes in 
builds upon this foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He needs to be building with gold, silver, and precious stones, or he will be building with wood, hay, or stubble. This wood, hay, or stubble, if you would, are fire-consuming materials. You lay them out there and put a fire to it, and poof, man, it just inflames. But you take gold, you take silver, you take precious stones, and you put them in the fire, what do you have? Refining. So you have a fire-refining set of materials and a fire-consuming set of materials. Here's the question. How do you identify what's what? What are the gold, what are the silver, what are the precious stones inside a church that me as your pastor ought to be proclaiming and building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? Here's what they are. Here's what I believe they are. They're found in Acts. It ought to be worship. We ought to be worshiping the Lord. We ought to be evangelistic. We ought to be winning people to Jesus Christ. Uh, we ought to be in Sunday school having discipleship and being together and sharing the gospel together and growing up in Jesus Christ. And there ought to be missions where we go around the world and we see souls saved and churches built and we impact this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's gold. That's, that's a precious stones. But what is wood, hay, and stubble? Well, you come in here, well, I don't give a rip. It doesn't matter. I'm glad to be here. You're glad to be here. You look good today. I'm glad you combed your hair. That's all good. It's one, we, I guess it's going to be, we're going to have fun. We're just going to fun, fun, fun. We're going to have fun in the Scripture. I'm going to tell a couple of jokes. I'm going to tell you a couple of things, and, and we're going to laugh about it. And it's just going to be hunky-dory. It'll just be wonderful. Then when we're done, we're going to circle up and grab hands and sing Kumbaya. It'll burn up before God. And what he's saying here in this text is that the materials that your pastor uses ought to be one that are refined the church of Jesus Christ. If they're put to the test and fire comes, you'll see that we really truly loved God, loved others and served the world. Not just because we preached it and talked about it, because you can see it in everything that we do. The materials. And then he talks about the test. The test. Verse 13 through 15. He deals with the test. And the test here we find, beginning in verse number 13, he says, Every man's work, again talking about church leaders, Every church leader's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every leader's work of what sort it is. And if any leader's work abide, which he hath builded thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. Now I want you to notice here in this passage of Scripture, he's talking about church leaders. So you think about the leadership here at the church. You think about your pastor. He's talking about me, Shane. He's talking about Karen, the preschool department. He's talking about Chris in the children's department. He's talking about Justin in the student department. He's talking about David in the men's department. Mark in the college department. Judy in the senior adults. Mary Beth in the women's department. He's talking about these leaders. He's speaking of these leaders to a capacity that says, Listen, leaders, you're going to have to stand before God and give an account as to why you did what you did. Did you just go rafting just to have a good time? Or is there a purpose there? Did you want to see somebody saved? This is why I'm convinced that everything we do here at Maysville, everything we ought to give somebody an opportunity to be saved. 
We need to pause just a minute and give an opportunity for somebody to come to Jesus because, bless God, listen, it don't amount to a hill of beans if we come together and eat all the ice cream in northeast Georgia, but we never stop and give somebody an opportunity to be saved. May God have mercy on us. I'm going to say something else, too. Right here at Maysville Baptist Church, every Sunday ought to be Super Bowl Sunday. It ought to be bigger than the Super Bowl. Why? Because what we're doing here right now is eternal. It deals with eternal nature. It's bigger than the Super Bowl. It's bigger than the SEC Championship. It's bigger than the World Series. It's of eternal importance. I want to be rewarded when I stand before God as to the direction I carried Maysville. And it's not a job. It's a ministry. As a minister of God, I want to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What happens here? Last forever. So we find here this is a judgment for pastors and leaders. But then watch this. In verse 16, he switches gears. In verse 16, he talks about the workman. The workman. Here Paul moves from the leaders to those that are within the congregation. And he gives them, by way of application, a grim warning to any workman in the church who tries to destroy or divide the church. Dear friend, we are to be working together. And in working together, we work to build the kingdom of God. We should never fight to tear the church apart. I want you to notice the flow of this text in closing. Number one, I want you to see the plural pronouns. We've already talked about them. You've got them marked in your Bibles. Do you see them there? Collectively, we make up the church. All y'all, all of us, he tells us. We see the plural pronouns. But I want you to notice also the personal pronouncement that's made in this text. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. The word there, uh, defile in the text, means to destroy. If somebody comes in, if there is an individual in the church that tries to destroy the church, inside the church, the Bible says God will destroy him. Now that word destroy there, if you've got your pens, I'd mark that word destroy because that word destroy that God's going to do, it's a very interesting word. That word, if you would, is in the future tense. It's not like Ananias and Sapphira, you know, when they lied and God killed them right there on the spot. It's not that word. It means that God heard you try to come against the pastor. He heard you try to come against the church. He heard you try to destroy the church. He knows that, and he's going to deal with you. It is in the future tense. Somewhere down the line, God's going to deal with you. It's also in what's known as the active voice, putting the responsibility on God. God's the one that's going to do something. God's going to do something to this individual. But it's also in what we know is, in the Greek, it's in the indicative mood. Now, what does that mean? Anytime you find a word in the indicative mood, it's just a simple statement of fact. So he says you can't argue with this. In fact, what he's saying is you ought to be able to look down through history and see where this has happened. Okay? I want you to follow me here. The Bible says here, according to this passage of Scripture, if an individual comes against the church... And that church, the leader of that church, is building on gold, silver, or precious stones. And they come in and try to destroy it with their mouth. The Bible says that God will destroy them. 
there will come a time where God will take them out. Is there any illustrations you got of that, Pastor? There are some. I want to give you one because I'm out of time and I'm going to close up. I'm going to be done. Several years ago, at my former church, we had a deacon who uh, really liked women. And uh, he told me one time, he says, I just think women are the most beautiful things on the planet. And I said, I, I agree with you, but you ought not touch all of them. And so he had a real problem getting too close to women. He would, uh, you know, we teach in the church side hugs, you know, good Christian side hug. Love you, brother. Not him. I mean, he was full frontal. I mean, he just coming. I know, Ethan, you'd stand up and you'd hug me. I know. Thanks for not doing it. And so we confronted him on this. And uh, he got irate with us. Irate with So much so. I was co-pastor this time. You'll love this. He came and pointed his finger in his face, in, in, in the pastor's face, said, you're Hitler. He pointed his finger in my face, said, you're little Hitler. <laughs> I got a full beard and mustache. I don't even look anything like Hitler. <laughs> I believe he said that. Well, to make a long story short, he wouldn't stop. So we had to remove him as a deacon. Don't, don't miss this. Several weeks later, he stepped out and he came forward. He came to me, I'm standing at the front, he comes to me and he says, I want to apologize to the church. I said, okay. I tell the church the man wants to apologize, I hand him the microphone. Listen, he takes the microphone and begins to rail against the church. Y'all are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Your pastor's a hypocrite. This man here don't care anything about anybody, no grace. I mean, just... It was ugly. Ugly. So I stood there. When it was over, I took the microphone. I said, let's pray for this brother. Prayed for him. Service was over and left. For the next few weeks, he raked us over the coals. I mean, absolutely how awful we were. Awful. We just prayed and said, God... This is your church, not ours. Within the matter of one year, the man got cancer. Within weeks of his death, I went to his home. I opened the door. His wife invited me in. I walked into his living room. He was sitting in his living room on the couch. And I walked up to him. I shook his hand. I said, how you doing? Tear formed in his eye. Started running down his cheek. He said, I owe you an apology. I said, what do you mean? He said, everything you said I did was true. And he said, you tried to handle it in private. But I wouldn't take it. And everything that you said I was doing, I knew I was doing. And I know God's punishing me. And I want to ask you to forgive me because you're the only one that kept speaking to me nicely and kindly while I was speaking about you with hate and vulgarity. I know that I'm dying because of my sin. Will you forgive me? I said, yes, I forgive you.
I was leaving that day and his wife pulled me aside and she said, Shane, my husband hadn't stopped talking about you for weeks. He said, you're the only one that was willing to tell him the truth. I want you to listen to me, dear friend. God will not be mocked. God's word is true. The history of deaths within the church, if they were found in sin, I'm telling you, God's not going to put up with it. Bless God, he'll take you home. He'll take you on to the house. First John, the Bible talks about there is a sin unto death. So I'm going to be honest with you. If you're a pastor, he loves Jesus with all your, all your heart. If you're visiting with us and you've got a home church and you're mad at your pastor, you, you better check yourself. All right? You better check it. According to the Word of God, the Bible says, if that man's building on the foundation of gold, silver, and precious stones, he's building for the kingdom of God. He's just continuing to lay on the foundation what was laid before him. Don't speak against him. Get on board and get moving forward for God's sake. Or maybe you're here today and maybe you don't know where you're going to spend an eternity. That dear precious woman who got saved this last hour squirmed the whole preaching time. She got set free knowing if she'd come to Jesus Christ as her personal Savior and Lord, she'd get redeemed and forgive, forgiven and would not have to go spend time in purgatory. Thanks be unto God, His Word is true. Maybe you're here today and maybe that truth rings true to you. I was standing down front after the first service at the invitation. Dear sweet woman come, tears running down her cheek. She said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That question about suicide has plagued me for over 30 years. Thank you. I feel a tremendous burden off my shoulder knowing the truth of God's word today. Maybe that's you. Dear friend, whatever your need today, why don't you trust Christ? Let him meet every need you have. Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Dear friend, why not do that today? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here and you'd like to trust Christ, <clears throat> why don't you cry out to him, say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Today I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for forgiving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name. And with our heads